The following recording is a presentation of the Brian Baptist Church of Rohnert Park, California, and of Pastor Val Mark Smith. We are an independent Baptist congregation committed to the accurate presentation of the historical doctrines of the faith. We welcome you to visit our services anytime here in the Rohnert Park area. Our series of messages on the Christ of the Covenant ends today. Uh, this subject has series of sermons has been through much patchwork to keep it together from our long suspension in February, but now we've reached the end of these messages, and they also serve as an introduction to the next series of messages, which will be about the Holy Spirit. I'm not sure if you remember, but going all the way back, uh, well, we're on sermon number 10, I think, now in the series, so going back several months, even before February... Uh, this series was prompted by some comments that were made by some of our members who said, we want to hear more about Jesus. Now, it seems that the troubles that our country was going through and is going through caused some to change the focus from learning Scripture to learning the Constitution. And I remind you that Christianity has survived for 2,000 years with bad governments, and we're still here. And if we had concerned ourselves with what the government is doing instead of what God is doing, then we wouldn't be here. So that's our focus, the, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, and certainly we want to hear more about him. So I love that comment that people said they did want to hear about Jesus. Now, if you've been with us for a while, um, long time, from December of 2008 until November of 2015, we studied the Gospel of Matthew. And I preached 285 sermons from the Gospel of Matthew in which 95% of the book concerns the last three years of Jesus' life. You would think that people have heard enough about Jesus. Now, if I were to give you... 285 lectures on the life of George Washington in the eight years that he was president, would you say that's just a little bit too much information about George Washington? And you'd probably get tired of that. And yet, in the nearly 20 years that I've pastored this church, I've preached hundreds of sermons about Jesus. And the story of him just never gets old. He's too immense in personality. He's too immense in being to exhaust what we can learn about him in our lifetime or even in a hundred lifetimes. The songs that we sing, the prayers that we pray, the scriptures that we read, no matter what part of the Bible they come from, all of them point upwards to Jesus. He's the central figure of the Christian life. He's the namesake of our religion and, of course, of the worship that we give him. Now, we, we can never hear too much about Jesus and Neither do we get tired of him. In Acts chapter 4, the boldness, the activity, the difference in the apostles' lives was noted in this way. In the 13th verse of that chapter, it says, Now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were unlearned and ignorant men, they marveled and they took knowledge of them that they had been with Jesus. And would to God that people would take notice of us and they would say they must have been with Jesus. I mean, by our knowledge of sacred things, by the way that we talk, by the uncommon lives that we live, by the love that we show to one another, they should say, well, those people must have been with Jesus. 
But some people would say, well, well, how could you have been with Jesus when we've never seen Jesus? Why would anybody say, have you been with Jesus? Now, that's kind of a loaded question because there are many Christians that would never have this asked of them. No one would even think to think about that, that they look like they're Christians or act like Jesus. But if you are a sanctified Christian, there's a good answer to these questions as to how we have been with Jesus. And I think we answered this last week from several scriptures, that Jesus Christ is with us every day, and he is in us. And he is in us by the Holy Spirit that he's given us. Now this series on the Christ of the Covenant centers on the recognition of Jesus from Old Testament worship in the tabernacle. And you are aware through the many sermons that I've preached on the subject that the tabernacle is one of, if not the most, comprehensive demonstration of the person and work of Jesus Christ in the entire Bible. Now, of course, the revelation of Christ in the New Testament supersedes what we have in the Old, and it is through the New Testament that we understand much of what tabernacle worship was about. Now, in the first eight messages, we concentrated on the Ark of the Covenant, and that's where I got the name of the overarching series, the Christ of the Covenant. And we spoke of the Ark of the Covenant as the centerpiece of Israel's worship. And indeed it was. It was the place where the sprinkling of the blood of atonement took place. Uh, it's where the light of God's glory was shown. It's where animal sacrifices were brought. That blood was brought. The Ark was carried on priest's shoulders as they traveled throughout the wilderness wanderings. And then when they came to the promised land, they, they crossed the Jordan River and they encircled Jericho and went around it seven times with the priests carrying the Ark of the Covenant. The Ark of the Covenant appeared to be Israel's power. But the Ark wasn't an idol. It had no power. None of the children of Israel wore little golden arks on a chain around their neck as a talisman. No, the Ark was not the power. It was the God of the ark. The God of the ark was the power, and that God was Jesus Christ, the King of kings and Lord of lords. Now, in these last two messages that we have on the old covenant and tabernacle worship, we moved from the presence of Jesus in that glory, that Shekinah glory that was above the ark of the covenant on the mercy seat, to another representation of Jesus Christ, and that is in the pillar of the cloud, where we actually see a picture of the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit is God. So now our, our study centers on the cloud of the covenant. Now I want you to look at verses in, in chapter 13 of Exodus, um, of Exodus, and we're going to start reading at verse number 17. And I want you to look at these text verses. This, this, this narrative is subsequent to the Passover. It precedes the departure of Israel from Egypt. Um, God wanted Israel to remember the manner in which they were delivered and how they were to celebrate their deliverance as a memorial of his mighty works. And so as a seal that God was always with them, he gave them and, and told them he would take them to the promised land. He gave them a seal. He gave them a pillar of cloud during the day and a pillar of fire at night. And these verses then are a synopsis of what God would do to lead them as they journeyed to Canaan. He conquered the Egyptians, he got Israel out of the land, and he promised he would be sure to lead them all the way to their destination, which was the promised land. 
Now, beginning in verse number 17, And it came to pass, when Pharaoh had let the people go, that God led them not through the way of the Philistines, although that was near. For God said, lest peradventure the people repent. That is, they change their mind when they see war, and they return to Egypt. The God led the people about through the way of the wilderness of the Red Sea, and the children of Israel went up harnessed out of the land of Egypt. And Moses took the bones of Joseph with him, for he had straightly sworn the children of Israel, saying, God will surely visit you, and ye shall carry up my bones away hence with you. And they took their journey from Succoth, and encamped in Etham in the edge of the wilderness. And the Lord went before them by day in a pillar of a cloud to lead them the way, and by night in the pillar of fire to give them light to go by day and night. He took not away the pillar of cloud by day, nor the pillar of fire by night from before the people. Now, as we begin our message today, I want to tie us back into our last message by just giving you a, a brief review. I begin by explaining the typology of this cloud. This cloud ties the Old Testament to the New Testament and the promise that Christ would send his Holy Spirit as an abiding presence in the lives of his people. And while we continue to look at pictures of Christ in the tabernacle worship, we're not to forget that our God is a trinity and that all of the persons of the Godhead are involved and concerned with our salvation. When the Holy Spirit is spoken of in Scripture, the Scriptures also refer to him as the Spirit of Christ. In the creation of the world... In the beginning, in Genesis, it says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And then immediately going into the second verse, it says, the Spirit of God moved upon the face of the waters. Now in this, we see that the Holy Spirit is known as the Spirit of Christ. He is the Spirit of God. In other places, we read that God is the Creator. We read that Jesus Christ is the Creator. We read that the Holy Spirit is the creator. And that tells us one very important issue, that our God is a trinity, that he is three persons, one in essence. And so we haven't strayed from that original principle, that we are talking about Christ, and that the tabernacle was primarily about Christ because we see him as a person of the trinity. In the cloud, we're taught another viewpoint of Christ. Another viewpoint of him present in the Old Covenant. When we see Spirit of Christ, that tells us that the Trinity was at work in the Exodus and in Israel's salvation. And still today, the Trinity is involved in every aspect of our salvation. It's the Father who elects his people to salvation. It's the Son who died to redeem the elect. It's the Holy Spirit who regenerates and prepares the hearts of the chosen for repentance and faith. And then when the convert becomes obedient to the gospel, then the Holy Spirit comes into him and becomes the abiding presence of Jesus Christ in him. And we look at all of this and we're just amazed at the marvelous salvation that God has given that goes infinitely beyond the devices of human reasoning. And as we look at it, we can only say that salvation is the brainchild of God. How it works and all of its many aspects is marvelous in our eyes. 
And if you've been with us, I think we've seen that in our previous messages. I mean, who could imagine that such vivid pictures of Christ are found here in the Old Testament, in these scriptures, that most of us, when we come to them while we're reading, we just skip over them very quickly or look at them haphazardly. And isn't that what we do? I know that many of you regularly read through the Bible each year. Do you find yourself hurrying through these passages? You find yourself trying to get through as quickly as possible? That's not an uncommon thing. Anybody that's read the Bible through, you know that there are certain places that you come to, well, I just don't think that's very important, or I don't want to think about that very long. Let me get into some more exciting stuff. And yet, all of the scriptures are rich when we understand them, and especially this portion that we study here. Oh, I heard a flippant comment a few months ago that confounded me. We, we talked about this in one of our Sunday afternoon forum classes. There was a preacher who was asked what the golden boards in the tabernacle were for. And he said, to hold up the roof. And he implied, if you saw any more in it than that, then you were just wishing and hoping for something to be there and you'd gone beyond the text. And I'd say, if that's true, then I've wasted copious amounts of your time with foolishness. Why golden boards? Why a lampstand? Why tables? Why a silver foundation of the tabernacle? Why the veil and why the cherubim? Why the four separate coverings over the structure? Why the Ark of the Covenant that is wood overlaid with gold? Does that mean anything? What's that for? Were those just arbitrary commands that God gave? But I have to ask you, now that we've been through the study and we're coming to the end, have you learned more about Christ? Have you seen more of Christ? Are there things about Him and His work of redemption that maybe you didn't know before? Or maybe you understand them better because they're brought out in Old Testament Scriptures that you never recognized before as truly being about Christ? I mentioned some time ago, I guess probably several times, that Robert Hawker, uh, an old... Uh, old uh, uh, commentator from the 18th century talked about um, in his uh, his little commentary on on the Bible, which is called the Poor Man's Commentary. Uh, poor man because it was mostly given away, or uh, those who were lay people were the ones who generally led, uh, read this. But he looked at the Book of Psalms, and you can hardly find a Psalm where he doesn't say this is about Jesus Christ. He was thoroughly convinced that you could find Jesus in every psalm. And I would say, well, I don't know if he's perfectly right on every psalm, but Jesus is all the way woven through there just as he is in the rest of the scriptures. So we look at this, and Jesus is found here. So we haven't wasted time. There are plenty of Old Testament scholars that agree with this approach. But as we look at it, we realize that there are some parts of this, when we talk about the tabernacle, some of it is much harder to see. Some of it is harder to understand. There are parts of it that aren't very clear. But this one, this one is, is more readily apparent than many that we see. We don't need to stretch anything to see the leadership of the Holy Spirit in these verses. The leadership of the Holy Spirit of Old Testament Israel, then the correlation of how he leads Christians in the new. Now, our first point of discussion from the last message was the cloud was God's gift. In the short preceding weeks before the Exodus, 
The Israelites had just learned the name of the true God. Now, the, the cloud was supremely important because it was a gift that gave them a visual of God's presence, of the God that they didn't know. Now, they didn't meet God in the burning bush as Moses did. They hadn't heard his voice as Moses did. They didn't have conversations with him as Moses did. They didn't speak face to face with God as Moses did. You remember when Moses died that the scriptures speak of the uniqueness of the relationship that he had with God? Upon his death, the scripture says in Deuteronomy 34, And there arose not a prophet since in Israel, like unto Moses, whom the Lord knew face to face. Moses' encounters with God left him with skin that shined so brightly that he needed to cover his face with a veil. None of the Israelites had encounters with God like this. In Egypt, what they were used to seeing was idols in their magnificent temples. The idols of those great temples that the Egyptians built, and, and they saw that daily. But God, Jehovah God, permitted no idols. And so it was a gift for God to give them a visual representation of his presence. That's a marvel of his grace. Now, the Spirit's presence in the cloud is a picture of the Holy Spirit abiding with his people. Christ promised the disciples when he left this world that he wouldn't leave them alone. His Spirit would be with them. His Spirit would be in them. And they would know that he was there by a feeling that I can't describe to you. If you are a child of God, you know that you are. The Bible says you can know it because the Holy Spirit is in you. Listen to the Apostle John who used his little letter to explain how we can know that we are truly Christians. He wrote in, in chapter 3, verse 24 of 1 John, And he that keepeth his commandments dwelleth in him, and he in him. And hereby we know that he abideth with us by the Spirit which he hath given us. Is there any of you that can give an adequate explanation of how you know that the Holy Spirit is in you? I've been saved for over 60 years, and I can't explain it. I can say to you that I know what I'm close to the Lord. I know when I'm further away from him. I know when I please him. And I know when I displease him. I know that. I know when he's here in our services and he's moving. But try to explain that to someone who's never come to faith in Christ. They have no frame of reference because they've never had a personal experience with God. To them, all of this is superstition. You won't realize the Holy Spirit until Christ is in your heart. Not until he's given you the, the gift of repentance and faith do you receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. And so the enemies of Israel looked down on Israel's encampment from the hills above, and they could see that cloud. And they could see how the cloud mysteriously moved. And whenever that cloud moved, Israel started packing everything up. And they began to move also, and they followed the cloud. Did the ones who observed this, did they understand it? Did they abandon their worship of all of their idols and then they started following the cloud? Well, no, they didn't. Instead, there were 
many attempts to get Israel to forsake following the cloud. Balaam counseled Balak to entice Israel to commit adultery with Moabites at Baal Peor. That's always the world's response to the God that they know nothing about. They don't consider, they don't feel anything, they don't understand anything about the one true God. And this is the way that Israel was at one time, but then God gave them a gift. He came and he showed himself, and he gave them this cloud to guide them. In the New Testament, Paul said, the examples of the Old Testament are for our learning. I believe that. The good that Israel did, the mistakes that they made, are to teach Christians how we are to act and what we are to avoid. Well, I need to go on. The cloud was Israel's guide. And the cloud, the cloud was a gift. And number two, the cloud was Israel's guide. It was a gift and it was their guide. Exodus 13, 21 in our text, And the Lord went before them by day in a pillar of cloud to lead them the way, and by night in a pillar of fire to give them light to go by day and night. And when Israel left Egypt, a, a population of about 70 that was the original family of Jacob had grown in over 200 years into millions. And they had become so numerous that the new Pharaoh was alarmed and he feared that Israel would join an alliance with their enemies. Scripture says that there were more than 600,000 men who left Egypt on foot. Uh, this would be the able-bodied men who could go to war. Some put the estimate at about 2.4 million Israelites. That would be including women and children. I believe that's a conservative estimate. Families were much larger then. And then the scripture also says that there was a mixed multitude that went out. There were some Egyptians. Perhaps there were other sojourners in Egypt that, that accompanied Israel on the way out. And this, this mixed multitude, that was part of Moses' headache, trying to keep everybody straight with God's commands. Now, because of the additional people, there are some who put the numbers that went out of Egypt with the Israelites at about 6 million people. Now, anyone who's been a leader and needs to make decisions knows that there are many, many opinions about what should be done and which way to go. Churches that go through building programs wrestle with multiple opinions about all the choices that need to be made and how we're going to build a building. Choices from carpet colors to bathroom fixtures and everything in between. I was in a church in Kentucky that built a new auditorium. And when I went into this building, I was especially drawn to the carpet. And I was told that no one made decisions on the building but the pastor and his wife. And it was his wife that chose the carpet. It was the ugliest thing I've seen on planet Earth. I mean, I, I didn't know that anybody could make anything that ugly. It looked like a funeral parlor from 1910. Now, I, I do understand... The reasoning for not opening up all tiny decisions to the congregation. Uh, I remember when we used to store our old pews back over there in the corner. It was a very ugly site. Some of you might remember that. And uh, we had a, a church discussion about how to deal with that. So we put up some folding panels that went around it so nobody could see it. But I remember that night that we were discussing that, that you would have thought that we were going to drop the atomic bomb. 
There were so many opinions about this, about what that should look like, how much money to spend. But my point about the whole thing is that everybody has an opinion. And in this mixed multitude that left Egypt, you can be sure there were opinions about which way to go. The shortest route was to go through Philistine territory. You look there at verse number 17 in chapter 13. And it came to pass when Pharaoh had let the people go, that God led them not through the way of the land of the Philistines, although that was near. For God said, lest peradventure the people repent when they see war, and they return to Egypt. Now that way of the Philistines would have been the way that Jacob's sons originally came to Egypt. When they came to Egypt to buy food from Joseph, this is the way that they would have gone. And it wasn't a very long way. At most, it might take three to ten days to make that journey. Well, it also happens that this was a very busy thoroughfare, a trade route that the Egyptians constantly monitored. And the Philistines would also hinder the Israelites because it was no secret what they were going to do. They were on their way to Canaan, and they intended to drive everybody out of Canaan and possess the land. So God knew this, and God said, well, you can't go that way, and his reason was it was a way of war. And Israel had no standing army, no organized standing army, and the people, as we see in their story, they were always prone to panic attacks of fear, much like people were in the uh, beginnings of the coronavirus, lots of people just totally afraid of that whole thing and didn't know what to do. And that's the way Israel would have become. So you can be sure when Moses said, well, we're going to go down this way, we're going to go by the Red Sea, and the Egyptian army was bearing down from behind them, and all of a sudden they're trapped against the sea that everybody thought God does not know the right way. They were hemmed in against the sea, and there must have been this buzz of opinions going through the crowd about what they should do. But oh, there was that cloud though. And that cloud that was leading that way suddenly went behind them and became a re-reward for them to block off the Egyptians as God intended to part the sea for Israel to go through. And that cloud became a pillar of fire at night for their protection. And they could go to sleep when they got across the river. They could go to sleep at night not fearing that any army would approach them because God's protection was there. So God did not lead them by the way of the Philistines. He led them down south into the wilderness of Sinai. And we know the story. From there it goes into 40 years of wandering in the wilderness. And lots of hard-learned lessons. Lots of chastisement. But always there was this ever-present cloud. God said it would be there and he would never leave them. And I'm sure that in those 40 years, there were some who said to Moses, can't we just leave the cloud? Can't we just get out from under the cloud? Let's go well. Let's go a different direction. Let's hurry this thing up. And it took a long time. But the cloud was the infallible guide. One step out of the shadow of the cloud made their march a death march. And many times within the cloud, because it disobeyed God, it was a death march. But to get out from under the cloud meant Israel's annihilation. Well, we'll discuss for a few minutes how the cloud is typical of the way that God leads in our lives. We don't have a cloud over the church. Many times it feels like we've got a cloud over the church, doesn't it? I mean, that's a proverbial thing. A cloud is an ominous thing. But we don't have a cloud over the church, but we do have a cloud. And our cloud is seen in three aspects of leadership. 
Now I recognize as I was trying to preach to you that I left last week's outline on the PowerPoint instead of giving you new ones. So I'm going to go a little bit slow here so you get all the points if you're trying to write them down. The first is the way that we are led is by the leadership of the light of God's word. We're led by the leadership, by the light of God's word. Immediately, when I thought of this, Psalm 119 came to my mind. In 176 verses, there are multiple references to the word. I think it was on Thursday night, my wife and I in our Bible reading, uh, I, I flipped over the page there to see what the reading was supposed to be for the day, and I saw Psalm 119. So I said, oh no, um, because I read out loud, and my wife listens as I read. And I said, oh no, 176 verses. But we went through it, we read the whole thing. And as you read the 119th Psalm, there are multiple references to the Word. It's called God's precepts, it is God's law, it's God's testimony, it's called God's truth, it is called God's ways, it's called God's commandments, it's called God's judgments, it's God's hope, it is God's salvation, it's God's statutes, it's God's mercies, it's God's comfort, it's God's wisdom, it's God's justice, it's God's hiding place, it is God's deliverance. And it just goes on and on and on. The psalmist keeps pounding us with this thought that everything we are, everything we need, everything we hope to be, everything in life comes to us through God's Word. The 19th Psalm says, The Word or the law of the Lord, the Word is perfect, converting the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The statutes of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. And back in that 119th Psalm, David said in that familiar verse, we all can quote, The word, thy word is a lamp unto my feet and the light unto my path. This is our guidance. But we need to ask, who is able to go by the way of the word? Who can navigate its paths? Who can understand it? And we've had the complete Bible now for 2,000 years. Why aren't we all agreed in the way that the world should go? I mean, the world has had the Bible for 2,000 years. We as Christians, we've certainly had it. Why are there so many opinions about how we should live? Why are there so many opinions about what justice is? What, what, what are our social interactions to be like? Why are there questions like, what is a woman? I mean, why do we have questions like that? And the answer is quite clear from Scripture. There must be the leadership of the Holy Spirit to guide us through the Word. Jesus said in John 16, 13, Howbeit he, when the Spirit of truth has come, he will guide you into all truth. Jesus said the Word of God is truth. In John 14, 26, But the Comforter, which is the Holy Ghost, whom the Father will send in my name, he shall teach you all things and bring all things to your remembrance whatsoever I have said unto you. Well, what is that? What did Jesus say to them? It was the truth. And that truth became the Scriptures. Well, why then doesn't everyone understand the Bible and why doesn't everybody apply the Bible to their lives? Well, this is what Paul says about it. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 13 and 14. 
Which things also we speak, not in the words which man's wisdom teacheth, but which the Holy Ghost teacheth, comparing spiritual things with spiritual. But the natural man, listen, the natural man receiveth not the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness unto him, neither can he know them, because they are spiritually discerned. That, that's the answer right there. No one can understand the word and be guided by it, except those who are led by the Holy Spirit. Vance Havner wrote, The wise Christian wastes no time trying to explain God's program to unregenerate men. It would be like casting pearls before swine. He might as well try to describe a sunset to a blind man or discuss nuclear physics with a monument in the city park. The natural man cannot receive such things. One might as well try to catch sunbeams with a fishhook as to lay hold of God's revelation unassisted by the Holy Spirit. Unless one is born of the Spirit and taught by Him, all this is utterly foreign to him. Being a Ph.D. does not help, for in this realm it could mean phenomenal dud. How many Ph.D.s have you met that you would say, no, that's a phenomenal dud? They don't know where they're from. They don't know how they got here. They don't know where they're going. They don't know how they'll end up. But the Bible has all of this information readily available But to the uninitiated, it's like reading Egyptian hieroglyphics. They can't understand it. What is the key to the understanding? Well, that key is the Holy Spirit who guides us into all truth. And so this is the reason that arguments that we make over the existence of God, so many times that falls on deaf ears, those don't become effective in the absence of the Holy Spirit. 2 Corinthians says that Satan blinds people to the truth of God's word. And there isn't a person on this earth that can overcome that blindness until the Holy Spirit spits and makes balls of clay mud and puts them over the eyes and tells you to go wash them off in the blood of Jesus Christ. What are the mysteries that perplex What are the subjects that people are wondering about? What produces so many opinions and hundreds of books in the the bookstore, the self-help sections and all of that? Where can you find answers to the questions that people are asking? How do I raise my kids? How can I be fiscally responsible? How should I treat my wife or husband? How do I deal with troubles, with trials, with sickness and disappointments? What am I to do? How can I be content? How can I be fulfilled? All life's perplexing problems that seem to have 2.4 million opinions about how to solve them are found in one place, in one book. It's about 1,200 pages, depending on your print size. And all of it's right there in the Bible. The Bible is the guidebook to life. It is the roadmap to life and to the afterlife. And you'll not get there safely without the preserved, infallible, inerrant, unchanged word of God. But none of it makes sense without the Holy Spirit. Isn't it amazing that Christians have all this information right at their fingertips and they have the Holy Spirit in them, but many Christians walk around just completely lost and wonder, what should I do? Well, to get the information out of the book, you've got to read it. And for churches to be led by it, somebody must preach it. But Christians don't show up to church with Bibles. That might be an indication that they haven't read it during the week. They don't show up with the Bible. 
they bring, if they do bring a copy to church, they had to get the pledge out, spray it on it, dust the cover off. Some people think that the preservation of the Bible means buying a zip cover to put on it and putting it on a shelf in an air-conditioned, low-humidity room. And the Bible, to them, is the place to put newspaper clippings, a record of all the dead in the family, and all the pressed flowers from the past funerals. That's what their Bible's for. Well, if the Bible is to lead you, you must open it. You must read it to follow it. A folded map isn't much help. Now, I realize in this crowd, I talk about a folded map. Most of you know what a folded map is. But some of the younger folks, you know, folded map, what in the world are you talking about? So I'll say, well, if you've got Google Apps on your phone, it won't do you good unless you click on it. You've got to open it. Maybe that's kind of something to go along with those of you who read the Bible on tablets and cell phones. So we are led by the light of God's Word. That, and that, folks, led by the light of God's Word is the key to the next two parts of our discussion because it's only in the Word that you find the next two ways that God leads. The second one is leadership by the light of Christ's example. Leadership by the light of Christ's example. We've all heard this, WWJD, what would Jesus do? Some folks say that's the guide for my life, WWJD, what would Jesus do? But it's very eerily strange that what Jesus would do is really like what they would do. No matter what it is, Jesus does what they do. And this is the reason that you need the Bible, because you'll never know what Jesus would do if you don't know what Jesus did. You've got to read it. Most, most just don't have a clue about this, and instead they have a fantasy Jesus. I've been that, through that many, many times, so I'm not going to beat that one to death. The tolerant Jesus, the loving Jesus, the one that never saw a lifestyle that he couldn't, he couldn't approve of. And the Jesus who overlooks sin because he never does want to hurt anybody's feelings. Those people don't follow Jesus' example. God's law does not evolve to keep up with the latest trends that says, well, it's okay to be gay, it's okay to be an adulterer, it's all right to be a pornographer, it's okay to be an abortionist. It's not okay but to be anything but as morally strict as God's commandments are strict. And when we don't live that way, God is offended and he calls all of that idolatry It's idolatry when you won't do what God says because you don't like what God said. So you must open the pages of the book to find Jesus. And there you hear Jesus say, if you want treasure in heaven, come and follow me. To a rich man, he said, sell everything you have and come and follow me. To a tax collector, he says, put down the tax books and come and follow me. To a man who wanted to bury his father, he said, let the dead bury their dead, come and follow me. To Peter and Andrew, he said, you've got to leave your nets and come and follow me. And and you know what he replied to those who said they did want to follow him? They said, "Jesus, Jesus, we'll go anywhere you want us to go. We want to be with you. Then he said, well, are you willing to be baptized with the baptism that I'm baptized with? And you know what that means? It means, will you take up your cross? Will you surrender everything that you are? Will you take the persecution? Will you take the ridicule? Will you take the death of the cross to come after me? You know, if you put on the WWJD bracelet, that's what Jesus did. And that's what Jesus meant. People are not persecuted for being tolerant of every perverted lifestyle that anybody wants to live. 
They are persecuted and taken to death for accepting and agreeing to the pervasive moral evils that are promoted by this society. They aren't persecuted for disbelieving in sin and hell. They aren't persecuted for telling people how awesome they are. But they are persecuted as soon as you come to them with the gospel of Christ and you say to them, your life is a mess. You need to repent of your sins. You need to put your faith in Jesus Christ. Your life is displeasing. You are a sinner and God hates sin and God will not tolerate it and God will judge you in the fires of hell. That's pretty strong stuff, but that's all stuff that Jesus talked about, isn't it? That's what Jesus said. So if you want to follow Christ, it's a different direction than the one you're going in. WWJD is not code for what you want to do and then say that's what Jesus did. And so it's not to give credit to all the life's awful choices, not to give credit for those to the one, one who in eternity will have nothing at all to do with it and consequently has nothing to do with you. Pick up the Bible and read what Jesus would do. Learn about sin, how he taught against it in every form. Here's what you find. 1 Peter 2, verses 21 and 22. For even here unto were ye called, because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example, that ye should follow his steps, who did no sin, neither was guile found in his mouth. He never sinned. That's the encapsulation of his life. He never sinned. He's the Savior. And the difference in your bracelet and his bracelet is WWYD. What would you do? And we know what you would do. Now I'm talking to anybody without Jesus Christ. We know what you would do. Your way is the sinful way. Proverbs 14:12 says, There is a way which seemeth right to a man, but the end thereof are the ways of death. Genesis 6, 5, and the Lord saw the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and every imagination of the, uh, of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Jeremiah 17, 9, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. And then Jesus in Mark 7, 20, that which cometh out of a man, that defileth the man. For from within, out of the heart of men, proceed evil thoughts, adulteries, fornications, murders, thefts, covetousness, wickedness, deceit, lasciviousness, an evil eye, blasphemy, pride, foolishness. All these evil things come from within and defile the man. Quite a different picture from the person who looks at himself and says, look how good I am. Look how deserving I am. A much different picture when you read what Jesus says. We have the life of the perfect Son of God to follow. And nobody can unless they know Him. And no one knows Him who doesn't have the Holy Spirit in Him. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 12 verse 3, Wherefore I give you to understand that no man speaking by the Spirit of God calleth Jesus a curse, and listen, and that no man can say that Jesus is Lord but by the Holy Ghost. If you follow the Son of God, you'll never go wrong. Israel followed the cloud, and the cloud never took them the wrong way. The cloud always went the way of Jesus. Now to finish our message today in our series, here's what we've learned, and this is the obvious conclusion that we come to. And that is, see on your listening sheet, leadership by the light of the Spirit's presence. Leadership by the light of the Spirit's presence. 
The Spirit's abiding presence is your guide. God has given you this wonderful gift to be the cloud to take you where he wants you to go. Ezekiel 36, 27 that we read a while ago. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and you shall keep my judgments and do them. And I will put my spirit within you. A few moments ago I said nobody can explain to those who've never known Christ what it means to have the Holy Spirit in you. But I can tell you this much, that when you step out from under the shadow of the cloud, in the cloud it's cool and comfortable, but when you step out of it, when you get out from under it, it suddenly gets very uncomfortably hot. This is what happens to Christians when you get out of the will of God. Jesus said in the Gospel of John that the Holy Spirit convicts of sin. God's Spirit is the agent in our chastisement. If he is in you, then he's right there when you sin to prick your heart and to let you know that you did and that you're walking out from under the cloud. Do you feel uncomfortable when you're living in sin? Are you content to walk away from the Lord? Do you get into sin and then you feel restless? Do you feel unclean? Well, that's the Holy Spirit striving with you to bring you to repentance and to bring you back under the fellowship of the cloud. Now, we've talked about discipline in the church many times. Uh, The Lord commands us to discipline people. Paul taught that we need to separate from offending members that refuse to repent. Discipline is good for the church, and it should be practiced. It helps to keep the rest of us out of sin. But we think about that person who is removed from the fellowship. What do, what do we depend on to bring that person back under the cloud of fellowship? Don't we expect that if the Holy Spirit is in them, that they can't continue to go in the wrong direction? Don't we expect God to work in a common way that's well, common among all Christians and believers that have the Holy Spirit? Don't we expect him to act this way, that God does not let people live in sin? He convicts. The Holy Spirit causes agony in the soul until you confess and you come back. Now, the, the, the Apostle John put it bluntly. He said, if that doesn't work, if you've disciplined someone and it doesn't work, and they leave and they don't come back, what do we conclude? They were never with us. They were never true believers. Paul said, treat them like infidels. Jesus said, treat them like publicans and heathens. Now, I can translate English into English for you. Assume they aren't saved, that's what he's saying. Don't say, oh, those are just backslidden Christians. No, you call them people that have never tasted the grace of God. Call them people that don't have the Holy Spirit in them. In short, he says, you call them lost. You, You start to witness to them again. If the Spirit is in you, he leads you into sanctification. Romans 8, 5, we read in that chapter a little while ago, For they that are after the flesh do mind the things of the flesh, but they that are after the Spirit, the things of the Spirit. Philippians 1, 6 says, Being confident of this very thing, that he which hath begun a good work in you will perform it until the day of Jesus Christ. You can see that Paul and, and John leave very little room for this big category that we think we have of backslidden Christians. Now, certainly we do know that there are people who can become backslidden 
That does happen, but I think a lot of times we're looking at unsaved people. And there certainly isn't a category of carnal Christians. That's taught by some. John 3, 6 says, That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is is of the Spirit. You can't cross those two things over. You recycle that back into Romans 8, 5 and 1 Corinthians 2, 14 and these verses in Romans 8, the 14th verse, For as many as are led by the Spirit of God, they are the sons of God. In the 16th verse, The Spirit itself beareth witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. In the 6th and 7th verses, For to be carnally minded is death, but to be spiritually minded is life and peace. Because the carnal mind is enmity against God. For it's not subject to the law of God. Neither indeed can be. There can't be carnal Christians because carnality is flesh. We are born again. We receive God's nature in our salvation and we live out of that nature. We are in the light as Christ is in the light. So we thank God for this infallible guide. Sometimes it doesn't look like we're headed in the right direction. I've met many Christians going in, in their trials, and they say, what did I do wrong? What, what have I done wrong? Why is God doing this to me? And all that I can say is that sometimes the path we travel, where God leads, is often rough, rocky and steep. But if you follow the right guide, you're always on the right path. And the path will lead you where God wants you to go. Isn't that Israel's experience? They, they, the cloud led them for 40 years in the wilderness. There was, there was much trouble There was much just going around in circles. Does that mean the Lord didn't know where they were going? No, Israel needed refinement. During that time, they needed purging. They needed sanctification. They need to be different from what they were before they would go into the promised land. And God works like that with us in our trials and troubles to perfect us, to bring us to maturity and make us depend upon Him. Now, believers in the New Testament need these kinds of things just like they did in the Old Testament. And what we shouldn't do is sit back here and marvel. Well, how could they do that? Look at Israel's hard hearts. How could they do that? Because many Christians are the same. I can tell you, when you get to the end of your journey, and when you've been under the cloud, you can be sure that it leads you across the river into the promised land. And when you cross over, Christ will be there. He gives you his spirit to navigate the way and to bring you to him. That's our hope. We'll never make it unless the spirit is our guide. Now this then is the encouragement that we receive from the Christ of the covenant. God is always with us. He gave us his Holy Spirit to leave no doubt in our mind that he is our father. That Christ is our savior. The Holy Spirit is our guide. If he is in you, then you don't need me to convince you that he's in you. You know it. Thank you for listening to this presentation of the Brian Baptist Church of Roner Park, California. If you would like further information about our church, please feel free to call us at area code 707-584-7275 or write to us at Brian Baptist Church, 6298 Country Club Drive, Roner Park, California, 94928. Additionally, you may visit us online at www.bebaptist.org.